I'm Jody Whites, Results and Success Coach, and these podcasts teach you how to make significant changes to live your dreams, make a positive impact on the world, and drop your regrets. It's time for you to get spectacular. Welcome back to Your Spectacular Life. I'm Jody Whites, your life and professional coach, helping you to get a life that you love. I am thrilled to have Marty Strong with me today. Hi, Marty. Hi, Jody. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I am doing great. Looking forward to this, um, this episode all week. It's great. Let me tell you a little bit about Marty. Marty Strong is a retired Navy SEAL officer and combat veteran. He is a novelist, a practicing CEO, and chief strategy officer, and the author of Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. And a second book, Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization, set for release in December 2022. Marty's traveled to over 40 countries, been shot at in a few, survived cancer twice, and experienced the loss of his oldest son. He has spent a lifetime meeting challenges head-on, succeeding in three professions, anticipating crises, and leading through crisis and chaos. Well, Marty, it seems like you've lived about four people's normal lives already. (laughs) That's great. You have quite the illustrious life. Now, I'm going to just jump in to um, what you got out of being a Navy SEAL. What, what, you know, just for you, you can be brief or explain sure. as long as you want. Yeah, sure. So, you know, when you get into, into a profession like the military, you're usually very young. You don't have much of an idea of what the world is about outside of your neighborhood, let alone in other countries or, or the kind of restrictive life that you, that you end up experiencing in the service. When you get into an elite unit like the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers, the Green Beret, uh, Marine Raiders, the, um, the structure is a little bit different. It's not the discipline that most people would think of when they see the military in the movies. It's not like yes or no, sir, and saluting in uniforms and inspections and things like that. But it, what it is, is a very creative, dynamic, kind of empowering environment where you're screened for your resiliency. You're screened for your intellectual curiosity and your ability to problem solve. And you also physically have to be able to... Um, be able to handle the rigors of the job. So when you put that kind of combination together, uh, Uncle Sam screens, in some cases, thousands of people each year to try to get in and a handful make it through each year at the other end. They go through another year to year and a half of training before they're really an operator, which is the the term du jour for Hmm. the elite, elite units. And when you're an operator and you're standing there on that day, you're surrounded by your peers and they really are your peers. Mm-hmm. There are people that are smarter than you, faster than you, they can shoot straighter than you. You can maybe do a couple of things better than them. And then you immediately have this friendly and continuous professional competition that doesn't end until the day you retire, which for me was 20 years later. 
And that marks you. It, it changes you. It changes your expectations about life and people and what's possible through, um, through using your, using your mind and, and, and thinking, thinking through things and taking risks. So that's really what I got out of the whole experience. Yeah. How did it change you? I mean, from before and after. Well, I was 17 when I went in. Oh boy. So I was pretty much a blank slate. I think, (laughs) uh, I don't know if it changed me. I'm, I, I grew up in Nebraska. I've got a pretty straightforward, old school, depre- I was raised by depression era parents. You know, you uh, keep your room clean. You don't get a, an allowance. You're supposed to work because you're part of the family. Go get a mm. job as soon as you can, which my case was probably around 12 years old. Um, mowing lawns and then, then delivering papers. It's just the way, way it was. That's the way Nebraska is anyway. It's, there's a blue collar ethic that mm. isn't really about intellectual pursuits it's just more about what everybody expects you show up you do the work you show up on time and you show up looking like you're like you're a professional so all those kinds of things were already embedded in my my character you know what was right and wrong good and bad taking care of people and uh you know so then you join the seals and in all of our cases you you end up feeling like you've almost got a a a u.s marshal badge pinned on you except (laughs) instead of your territory being the united states your your territory is the world Mm. and you're hoping you're just hoping that once you're prepared and your team is ready to go that somebody sends you out there to wrap up some bad guy and and that that's a a fun job it's a thrilling job the confidence compared to a 17 year old going in Mm. and you know where i was just two years later and then 20 years later radical you know, parabolic jump in, in confidence about life and, and uh, risk-taking and, yeah, and adventure in general. It, it certainly sounds that way. And um, in Be Nimble, there are stories and, and fascinating situations which you manage to move into and out of and great learnings from that. So I would highly recommend that. Um, and what you know? What led you on the life out of you know getting out of the seals twenty years later? What sparked the interest in writing? So the the transition out of uniform is kind of a natural one for for people in the profession I was in because what you know we're we're parachute jumpers and we don't just jump a couple of times, not even a couple hundred times. I jumped about seven hundred and fifty times. My word. And that means you landed 750 times <laughs> and not all of them are wonderful landings. So I messed up my back at one point late in my career. Uh, you're, you're, you're getting banged up. You're falling off of things. You're getting hit by things, run over by things, running into things in the dark. And over time, you just, you end up, end up like a professional athlete when they know they're about two steps slower than they used to be. Mm. And then to add insult to injury, you have all these 20 to 25 year old guys running by you in the morning, you know, when you're doing your, your uh, morning run with the team and they're, Hey, sir, how's it going, sir? And then they take <laughs> off and you, you start to realize, okay, I'm getting a little long in the tooth for this job and I need to, I need to figure out something else. So the, um, the transition was kind of natural and it made sense to me at the time. And I wanted to uh, be a lawyer. I prepared for that. Then I decided to uh, go a different direction and I got into managing money first with Lake Mason Wood Walker in, in Baltimore and then with the United Bank of Switzerland. 
the writing kind of came naturally. I liked writing as a, when I was a kid. I was a good writer, uh, both as an enlisted SEAL, which I did half my time as an enlisted and half my time as an officer. And as an officer, I just had a knack for it. And that's a bad thing when you're in the military because then people just give you jobs to do with mm. involving writing because nobody wants to do mm-hmm. writing. But that also makes you better at it, right? You, mm-hmm. so most, of it's, sure. most of it's technical writing. It's not narrative or, or fictional writing. But then you also have mission planning. And in mission planning, you're essentially doing scenario-driven project management. You're, you're laying out all these, these storyboards of all these potential outcomes in every phase mm-hmm. of the operation. And that is very much fiction because it's the same, the same process that a novelist would, would uh, engage in. So I did a lot of that. I was pretty good at planning. So I got a lot of repetition. So when I first started writing, I realized that uh, I was comfortable doing it. And like a lot of writers or people that want to be writers, I was being too critical and trying to edit myself about every other mm-hmm. sentence. And once I read a book uh, that was that was essentially about letting yourself free and just do a stream of consciousness kind of thing. Don't don't even do spell check. Just mm. write, save, go back the next day, write, save. Mm. You know? And all of a sudden it just started coming out. And I felt like the stories were there and... Uh, I had to learn a little bit about character development and, and, you know, plots and subplots and everything, not in a hyper-technical way, but yeah. So that's how I started kind of, I segued from technical writing in the military, always loved it as a kid and ended up doing it first in fiction. And then later with Be Nimble, uh, the business book in nonfiction. Yeah, that's great. I love the fact that everything that you were doing was possible outcomes. And your book, Be Nimble, is, I think, highly strategic. In fact, um, you explained in Be Nimble that um, in developing strategies, you have to see the strategic opportunity and be willing to take the leap. Now, how do you inspire others to go beyond their fears to take risks. And this can be both in the military or, you know, in the private sector of your careers. If you're fortunate enough to develop a track record of winning more than you lose, and you're put in a leadership position, you have a natural advantage with the people that are following you and listening to you as far as guidance and, and judgment and things like that. So that was helpful for me. I was an enlisted SEAL first for 10 years. So over the decade of already being a SEAL, when I became an officer, um, the men that were working for me knew that I already had a decade of, of doing the job. I mean, I wasn't a brand new person right out of college or something. So I felt comfortable. I, felt, I knew what they were thinking and knew what they were concerned about as far as my leadership. And I addressed those things. I got better and better and better, more comfortable. And I just kind of took that style into business. So when I got into business, first with, with uh, managing clients, their expectations, their fears, their concerns, mm-hmm. hopes, dreams, you know, in the, the long-term planning process and a lot of estate planning decisions. And then when I got into business as a, as a senior business leader, I realized my, the first deficit I had was either with a client or in a new business, the people that are following me don't know me. I don't have the trust. I don't have the track record. Mm-hmm. So I have to somehow... If, if possible, accelerate the track record to get the trust as soon as possible. Because at some point, I'm going to have to make a decision, and I may not have the time, the capacity, or or the or the followers that are willing to, you know, understand, to 
explain it all to everybody, convince everybody mm-hmm. with logic and math and everything, get <laughs> everybody on board before we say, okay, let's go ahead and move forward. Nowadays, with the speed of things, whether it's externally you know, induced like a pandemic or a competitor that's, that's you know, eating your lunch across the street and you got to do something about it or, you, or you're going to be, uh, you're going to be in, her, in a hurt locker, you don't have time to sit around and, and have everybody come in and say, Hey, so what does everybody think? Let's, you know, let's figure this out. It's not, it's less of an academic process than may, than maybe it is in either really slow industries or in organizations where there, where speed and time is not a part of the part of the matrix of, of, uh, of constraints. But in the businesses I've been in, whether you're scaling up, scaling down, uh, maneuvering, pivoting, hopefully not reacting, but sometimes you're reacting, or even if you're going to be proactive, if, if right now I say, okay, I see something coming in 12 months, we have to start doing things now. It, so proactive is, it, it feels like reactive because you're still taking action and you're changing things. Mm-hmm. But all those things require judgment. They require patience. They require a certain uh, poise, which if you can do that as a leader, it's appreciated by the followers and you'll always have somebody that's looking at you saying, you didn't explain it to me in the language I wanted to explain to me, but hopefully if you, <laughs> if you operate this way for a length of time, they start to trust you because whether they don't understand exactly what you said or what, what the purpose is, you've got a good track record now with them. And then you can start really leveraging that track record. So I've been lucky enough, I think to have good people working with me, I've had good subordinate leaders and, you know, I'm a, and there's a chapter in the book, you know, 85% rule. I don't believe anybody can ever get to hundred percent purity. You know, the pursuit of perfection is nice, but the way things are moving, it's almost as if the building you're building halfway through is irrelevant and behind the times. And now there's somebody across the street building the new kind of building mm-hmm. or the new widget or the new, whatever it is. Right. So if you wait too long to, to achieve perfect, sometimes you miss the swing when the world decides we want to go that way now. So 85% is pretty much good enough. I'm not a brain surgeon, so I don't have to worry about 100%. <laughs> That's a good one for 100%. But yeah, yeah, I think I think those are all the elements that you need as a leader. Those are all the elements that you need to um, to gain trust and and hopefully make good decisions. And it, uh, you know, I like what you said about really being proactive. I mean, having the time for innovation and looking ahead at what will be needed, I think is critical in making business decisions for, um, for the business, the people, and um, again, trying to anticipate what's coming down the line is, is incredibly important for a leader as well as communication. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then um, writing about how quickly things change, you said that positive change management requires leaders to learn how to influence key decision makers and stakeholders in their hierarchy, you know, how do, how do you go about doing that? You're a new man on totem, on the totem pole. You don't have a track record. How do you convince those higher ups in a business? In my experience with, with that other sphere of, I guess, allies and, and stakeholders, you're actually in a better position when you, they don't know you 
the honeymoon period, because unlike leading people within an organization, people outside an organization aren't your followers and they're not with you every day. They don't watch you make good judgments. They don't see you react to bad news in a, in a optimistic, upbeat way and say, all right, let's just roll our sleeves up and see what we can do. And then they get, they get calm and they realize this, this person isn't going to freak out every time something goes wrong. Those outside people, you see them once a quarter, mm. you see them once in a while. Mm-hmm. It's usually in a very, um, I guess, uh, structured and very sterile kind of, you know, like a board meeting or, mm-hmm. or, or a call with an agenda. And it's more difficult. It's more difficult to project charm, especially in this, this day and age with, with Zoom calls and things. It's, it's more difficult to project uh, authority, uh, confidence, and um, credibility, competence, because you're doing it in kind of a weird one, one, it's like a Jeopardy thing. Like you ask the question, I give the answer, I stand by for a question. It's, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel, it's, it's clunky. It's not a normal human communications process most of the time. Because what you're doing is you're checking in with these, these people and you're telling them, this is where we are. This is what we're doing. And they're saying, what about this? You go, yeah, this is what it is. Okay. What about that? Okay. And you're done. So it's, so it's you, a set agenda and you're just going through the list. It's in really little to do with day-to-day decisions that may affect, you know, everyone around you more, ab- and absolute, more organically, shall we say. Absolutely. And most of these, these organizations, whether they're banks or private equity firms or whoever they are, investors, you're just one of five, six, seven calls like that, that day. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, I don't take offense. They, they only have so much time to spend on you because they've got to move on to the next thing. So, you know, that's, that's their world. That's their job. They, they do a pulse check, they hit all the bases. And so it's very difficult to answer your original question. It's very difficult to communicate, convey, and be perceived as a, as a strong leader or as a competent leader in the same way you hit, you have the opportunity to do so when you're around people all the time, yeah. day in, day out, in the trenches with them. <laughs> right, right. Where things really move or, you know, you can course correct or, or not if mistakes are made. Um, now, I found this really interesting in your book. You stated that you came to the conclusion that true challenges in organizations are defined by their power to disrupt or defeat the status quo. Um, can you say a little more about this? Well, I think there's, I mean, organizations are a reflection of the people, not just the leaders, but the people within the organization. You can have a very dynamic, high risk taking leader, but if everybody else in the organization, you know, doesn't take risks as a, as a, as a function of their profession, let's say they're all security professionals, you know, like safety (laughs) professionals, Um, or by personality, they just, you know, they're, they're there for a job and they're getting their paycheck and they're doing their job and they're competent and professional. And then one day some crazy person walks in and says, Hey, we're all going to do this. And, and just expect them all to say yes. Well, sometimes you have that kind of split. Uh, Rarely do you have a lot of hard charging people in the organization in in a large group and then a very scared, no zero risk tolerance person at the top. It does happen. And mo- mostly it happens in divisions in larger corporations where somebody's been put in and they know if they make a mistake, their career's at stake because they want to move up yeah. eventually. And they have people right below them that see that there's a need for change. We have to pivot. We have to act. We have to do it now. 
and they're pounding on that door and <laughs> slipping messages under and, and the and the leader inside is saying not going to take a risk not going to take a risk not going to take a risk mm. so if an organization wants to deal with reality the organization has to be comfortable with change and that is a, that is a form of power that if the organization doesn't know it, the leader should let the organization know that's okay. It's a good power. It's like a, like a superpower. Yeah. We all get together. We get in a room, we figure this out and we go do what has to be done. And then we make it normal again for a while until we have to do it all over again. And we got each other's backs and we're not going for hundred percent. We're just going to make this thing as smooth <laughs> as it can be. And then once you've done that, if you can do that, the organization is psychologically more prepared for change, whether it's proactive, reactive, or, you know, a crisis. Right. Um, and it sounds like you're almost folding a new way of being a risk taking way of being into the culture of the company. And just what you said, you know, we're going to be in a room, we're going to solve it, we've got each other's back. By communicating that, people can feel good about taking risks and chances and pivoting because of that communication. It's not your job is on the line. If you screw up, it's, hey, you know, we're going to figure it out. We're going to solve this problem. So that's, yeah, that's a great way to do that. I love the example you had in your book. Um, How you explained about redefining the roles for SEALs in the mid eighties. Um, how did you come across that opportunity? And then how did you sell it to the department of defense? You know, a well-known company that moves very slowly with change. Well, it was a very specific mission involving many submarines and, and I was not trained to drive or navigate many submarines. I had never been in a mini submarine. I think I was maybe had about 16 years in the Navy at the time, um, I was asked to review the fact that uh, the Navy was going to get rid of them. They, they hadn't used them in combat since the early 1960s. They're very, very expensive. And I'd been re- writing some strategic documents for the Admiral in charge of the SEALs. And they said, hey, take a shot at it. See if you can think up a, a justification for keeping them around. So I because I was probably objective and too stupid to know what the right answers were. <laughs> I just put down what I thought I would use a mini submarine for, <laughs> which was to move, uh, to move snipers around uh, because snipers don't want to be seen. Mini submarines aren't seen. Sure. Thought, well, it's Sounds a perfect, un- perfect yeah. underwater stealth helicopter. Absolutely. I actually use that line. And so I sent it back. I actually read it over the phone back in those days because <clears throat> I was on an Island and somebody else typed it up. And about two weeks later, I got called down there and they said, okay, I what <laughs> the Navy, the Navy's given us a year Wow, proof of concept. <laughs> and you're going to a mini submarine team on the, on the East coast. <laughs> so I was sent out and I showed up and I still wasn't qualified. So they took me down to Puerto Rico and they brought down one mini submarine and a bunch of extra guys to help. And I had two uh, warrant officers with about 25 years each in mini submarines both design and operations. And they put me out there and we just flew all over the Caribbean, just above the, above the uh, grass. You can see conch mm-hmm. shells and dolphins rushing up and zipping along next to the mini submarine. And they taught me everything they could possibly teach me so I could get enough hours, get trained in all the skills. 
so I could come back and be qualified to lead a, a task unit and then test what I put down on that one page thought piece. So it, it, it wasn't a grandiose plan. It was basically enough to put a foot in the door to keep the door from slamming shut. I think because I was ignorant of most of it, I came in with a new perspective. Turned out it worked out okay. And then I had to prove it, which I really wasn't sure how to do that because I didn't even know how big the back of this, this mini right. submarine was. So one thing led to another, and eventually I had to uh, deploy overseas in charge of a task unit uh, to, to prove that it would work overseas. And then once they saw that it would, then all the many submarine teams converted to what I, I was um, building and what, I, what me and my team was you know, testing and evaluating and proving in the Mediterranean. So yeah, it was an interesting, it just kind of, I mean, I wasn't a very senior officer. I just kind of, one thing led to another and most of the innovations and most of the things that made it happen, actually almost all the innovations, mechanically, technically, et cetera, were all done by the, the mid-level and junior enlisted guys yes. who were really fired up about the idea. Yeah, and they would come to me and say, this is how we get this in the back of the boat. This is how we can do this. This is how we can do that. I go, okay, I don't know any better, whatever you say. And it all seemed to work. So yeah, yeah that, that's, that's how that story went down. Great story. And it seemed like, uh, yeah, the mid-level and junior folks and personnel had a, had a real opportunity to make an impact. And of course, that's going to fire them, them up to make this project successful. That's great. Um, you know, um, you stated you know, in your book, again, that um, for departmental success, you have to use the available tools and assets and get them fixed and repair them and reprove them and then fight for more resources. Um, how do you get around roadblocks or people who are getting in the way for that system to be into place? Well, it's no, no easier for me than it is for anybody else. If you don't have positional authority and, and resource control, uh, which for a good part of my earlier career in the military, I absolutely did not have that. And, and for a very small period of time, when I got into business leadership, um, I had to, well, first you, you look at what you have. You just, you just said it out loud. You look at what you have, you do an inventory. What do we have? It's like if a plane goes down, everybody gets out there. Okay. We have any water, we have any food, anybody has a flashlight, you know, so when you're put in charge of a, of a department, a division, any kind of a unit, you have to do an inventory. You do an inventory of everything you have that's an asset. The number one asset is almost always the people, hmm. and at least in all the jobs I've been in. So you want to meet the people. You want to talk to them a couple of times to get a feel for them. What, what do you think they're, uh, it's kind of like an individual, you know, SWOT analysis, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and, and concerns instead of, a, instead of threats. And then in your mind, you mark, okay, this is all this person needs to be two or three steps up from where they are. This person needs some training. I got to figure out how to do that. So you're already kind of, it's not repairing them. It's you're figuring out what your, your management plan is, professional development to make each one of them stronger. So the whole team is stronger. Yeah. And you do that at the same time you're checking the desks and you're looking, clicking the light switches on and off to make sure everything that you've been given actually functions and works. And if you find that it doesn't, you start to figure out, okay, do I need to replace it or repair it? How do I go out doing that? And where you get into the roadblocks is where money's required to do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, if you come into an organization and there's 10 people and there should be 20, I don't care how much you train the mm -hmm. 10, if it requires 20, especially if the ones that are missing are key 
uh, and specific talents that you don't have, then you've got to go to somebody hat in hand and say, I need money because I need to hire. Hmm. And if they say no, there's no magic power to suddenly make those people appear or make the money appear. So you use any, any type of persuasion you can pretty much. You, you lay out the logic. You, and if, if your boss is the person saying no, you have to lay out kind of the storyboarding again. Here's where we are. <laughs> here's where I assume we've been. Mm-hmm. Here's where we're heading. And here's what's going to happen when we get there. And I'm not in charge of this department. You are. <laughs> so right. I, I will do you're the best. Make I it can. happen, or yeah. you're, we're not going to make it happen. I will do the best I can with half of what I need. But guess what? You're going to get half the results that, that your <laughs> bosses expect you to produce. Yeah. And a lot of times that works. A lot of times that works. But you know, you're not doing it in a threatening way. You, you try to do it in a way that's you're almost like an internal consultant to your boss. You're like a strategic partner. Hey, I, sure. I, I'll help you look good and do your job because that's my job. But come on, you've got the authority and the controls here. And I, I can't do this without your help. Um, another way of doing it is you, you can figure out whether or not you had that the, your predecessor had more than he needed or she needed. And maybe you can do what is required with exactly what you have, but maybe you need to cross train people. Mm, so you create, you know, team resilience and bench strength, et cetera. And so those are all different mechanisms. And obviously, if, you know, I'm a CEO, so um, I don't have those issues. I, I have people coming to me asking, I'm the resource guy. I basically Mm. tell all my senior leaders, you run into a problem that you need something that you don't have the authority to go ahead and act on. You pick up the phone, you call me, you let me know. Mm. I don't want you waiting or wondering if I'm going to say yes or no. You call me and tell me what's going on. And that's wonderful that uh, you've let your, you know, company know that because many people can't get to the higher levels. And I love what you said about laying out the truth. You know, here's where we are. Here's where we've been. You may get, you know, this is a potential result of getting half the results that you're looking for. I mean, that that's that's honesty. And then that person gets to make that decision. Um, tell me what, what company, um, what are you uh, CEO of? And um, sure, what's the company culture like? Usually so, it goes top down. I'm yeah. a, uh, I'm the CEO and chief strategy officer of a, of a management holding group called LGS management group. And it evolved from an original defense contracting company that was started back in 2006 and became an, uh, an employee owned company in 2015. I was a, an equity partner with the founder by that time. And I stayed on as the president and CEO and he retired, didn't really retire. He's doing all kinds of stuff. He's a jet pilot. He's a jet pilot. He's, yeah, he's, he's the uh, most interesting man in the world, actually. Um, Sounds like elevated retirement. Yeah. Also a former SEAL. So yeah, he's, he's, out, he's out doing that. So I, uh, I went out and kind of put my UBS analyst hat back on and, and thought we needed to add another, another company. And first I thought it was gonna be a government company. Instead, I, I found, and we, purchased as an ESOP, a, uh, a one employee healthcare company hmm. that was a, operating in about a 25 mile radius of Richmond, Virginia. So that was five and a half years ago. And now that company is 168 doctors and nurses in seven States and the government contracting company is still part of the employee. So there's two businesses, two different operating businesses doing two different things, all hmm. within the employee owned ESOP enterprise. And I'm at the top with my CFO kind of 
giving strategic guidance and looking at, you know, like basically resource management, resource management. If you're scaling, you're growing, can yeah. we get more money for you? Yeah. You know, and, and obviously interacting with the board and all that. Oh, bravo. It sounds interesting. And the fact that it's employee owned makes it even better. And uh, what would you say your mission statement is for this company or these uh, two, two healthcare companies? You know, we don't have a written statement these days, but in a lot of the briefings in the early um, period when we purchased the healthcare company, I realized that we do, we do security training to U.S. military and U.S. government law enforcement agencies. And we also provide high-end security to NASA, Department of Homeland Security, uh, research centers and things like that. So a lot of, you know, there's bomb sniffing robots involved and mm -hmm. cybersecurity and all kinds of other things. So I realized that ironically, we had these two businesses, but they were both focused on keeping people safe mm. or, or healthy. And so if, if anything, there's kind of a common theme between the whole organization that all almost 600 people in 21 states are all focused on helping people survive mm -hmm. either a risk, a known risk, a potential risk, you know, and, and medical or otherwise. So that's a, that's a pretty cool benevolent mission, you know, all mm -hmm. by itself. We don't, I don't really think of it in terms of like EBITDA and revenue and, and that kind of thing. It's more, that's more what we're all about. I like that. I like that. Keeping people safe. And uh, there's a lot of mileage you can get out of that as, as your message, you know, obviously. You know, you wrote two adventure series, um, Time War Warrior Sagas and the Seal Strike series. And these are science fiction, fantasy, or whatever genre you'd like to adventure, uh, name that. Um, what, what got you interested in doing that? Very different from our conversation that we've been having for the past 35 minutes. So I read Tim Ferriss's book, the four hour work week yep. in 2017, same year I, I, I got kidney cancer and they got rid of it within about two weeks. Um, mm, great. Through surgery. So, you know, I was, I was a, I was a cancer victim for about 13 days. Um, the, the book basically laid, I laid out a lot of good things, but one of them was, to live your bucket list. And, mm -hmm. and I looked at the bucket list, the way he laid out the examples, it was all traveling. Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I've been, I've been all over the place. I mean, traveling wouldn't be the thing I want to do. Um, so I made my own bucket list. And the whole point of Tim Ferriss's thesis was don't wait until you retire. Don't wait until you don't have an income coming in and you start thinking about safety and you're not going to do all these things, or you're not healthy enough to do all these things. Go ahead and make your list and then price each one of those out and or he was talking about trips and then save up for it and then go. So if you want to go to Makapiku, you want to go to an Alaskan cruise, take a spreadsheet out, figure it out, save the money in a savings account, go now. Don't wait. Well, I was listing things like want to learn how to play the guitar, want to learn hmm. how to speak, speak Spanish fluently. Nice. I want to write a novel and I want to write a, a nonfiction book, a leadership book. So the easiest one for me on that list was to write and i just couldn't see that it was fun considering i work all day to do a, a business book <laughs> so i decided i was going to do a book initially about seals and then i thought well you know what that's kind of too easy i i, I uh i think i want to write about the seal warrior ethos and the brotherhood within the teams and the 
the camaraderie and the spirit and all the things we've already mentioned about the unique uh, attributes and character of, of special operations people. But I, I don't want to be held accountable for whether or not I made a mistake on what gun they're carrying. So I said, how can I get away with that? Well, <laughs> you don't have get to do your that? research on the tech, right? <laughs> I, I make it, I make it science fiction. Yes. Well, that was my intent. That ended up not being the way it worked out because I somehow got into time travel and it turns out if you want to make it halfway decent, you have to become a historian. Mm. And guess what? If you bring somebody back in time from the year 2023, excuse me, 2123, and they're back in the Byzantine uh, era or they're back in the Germanic tribes versus the, the Romans in, in Gaul, you got to know what kind of sword they're swinging. Mm. You know, you got to know the names mm. of these things because mm. all that changes. And so I ended up getting a pin pin interest account, whatever, and, and researching all the garb <laughs> and the, the equipment. And, and as each book went along, it was in a lot of, they're always in different eras of time, ancient times. So I had to relearn that all over again and do a lot of research before I started writing. So I ended up doing it anyway. And after, I think the second time travel um, sagas book, I realized, so what, why was I dodging the seal book thing? Cause I have to do the same thing anyway. Mm -hmm. So I, I wrote, the first book uh, in the seal strike series so there's four books in each each series and i'm actually halfway through the fifth book in the seal series it's called mm. kandahar kandahar moon and i wrote those novels under ml strong so and, you know and it was cathartic and I, I started my writing discipline by getting up at 5 15 in the morning and writing for about an hour seven days a week and after a while it becomes a habit like anything else like brushing mm. your teeth and and i already talked about the stream of consciousness threshold I got through years earlier and it started to be fun. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's a lot of fun for me. It's almost like meditation. I have a blast doing it. I don't push myself. I don't make myself do a certain work count every day. Um, yeah. And I'm anxious to get back to it each morning. Mm. I'm excited to read what I'm excited to read what happened in, in the previous paragraphs. And then my brain starts wheeling and I basically see the story in my head and I just start typing. What a great way to, to write a book, you know, just the narrative, you're excited and it flows, which is great. Do you know the name of the book that you read? Just to... uh, the four hour work week by well, Tim Ferriss. Yeah. Um, but the one that opened up the free flowing thoughts and non non-critical judgment when writing. Do you remember that one? I know uh, you said it was a long time ago. It was too. It, it, uh, I don't remember the name. Okay. And it, yeah, unfortunately, but it, it was, and if you probably could Google uh, books on writing stream of conscience, just yeah. that string. There's, probably there's the artist way by Julia Cameron off the top of my head that allows you just to write and not judge. So I'll throw yeah, that it, one it, out. It, yeah. It's, it's hard even for technical writing. I've got oh, people sure. that write proposals and they, you know, they're always falling behind. And I go, why? Because they're rewriting the same paragraph for two hours. Oh, you know, just, yeah. just, there was a book called um, Write the Bones, I think, or Write to the Bones. And it was about bulletizing your writing mm. and coming back and putting the flesh and the muscle and the, and the, you know, the fat and the skin on the bones after the fact, just to get, it's like normal outlining, yeah. but it's, it was kind of outlining on steroids as the first draft. And then you go back and now you've got this, this thought pattern and you can start, and then you just do maybe um, a two or three sentences or maybe a, a small paragraph, keep rolling right through. Then you go back and you put a little bit more on. So it's a way of just kind of coming back and adding a little bit, a layer at a time. And um, 
And that's how I usually teach. If I have to teach or show somebody about technical writing, I said, that's the best way to do it. You know, here's the question. You know the answer. Put the bullet answer down. Move on to the next question. Get the whole proposal written. Then go back and start laying in the flesh. And, everything. and then depending on how much room and space you, you've been allowed, then you can put in some of the flowery narratives and the examples and, you know, analogies, mm-hmm. whatever you want to put in to make it spicy. Yeah. Good, good suggestion. I like that. I like working with those, those bullet points. Um, now you, in addition, Be Nimble is out. You have a new book called Be Visionary, and it's going to be coming out, as you said, December 2022. Um, can you give us some brief highlights? Sure. So it's uh, Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. It'll be out for pre-sale and Amazon in March. The um, <laughs> So uh, one of the chapters in Be Nimble is on strategy. And one of my beta readers, who is a CEO, who is reading chapter by chapter, I, I use beta readers for all my writing. So I, I get feedback nice. from people that like the kinds of books I'm reading. So they're not the same ones for the SEAL books or the time travel books. And, <laughs> and they're not the same people for my um, business books. But I use CEOs and people that might be familiar with what I'm talking about in the, in the business books. And I got this comment back that the strategy chapter in Be Nimble, he said, you could write an entire book on this. Mm. So I had it in the back of my mind and I thought, okay, so Be Nimble is more about the mechanics of leadership and kind of inspirational and, and action, action oriented, you know, lots of tips and tools. So I'm going to write a book about strategy. Well, the, the conflict that I've run into, and it's, it's all over the United States is in corporate America. It's been around for about 20 years. And you could, if you look it up, you'll see that it's been talked about considerably and written to now, especially with uh, private, excuse me, with publicly traded companies, where you end up getting this kind of analysis and metrics focused culture mm. where KPIs, which is the, yeah. the, cool, the cool term, right? So key performance indicators. Now, computers make it easier to measure. Measuring makes it appear to be easier to manage. It doesn't mean you're leading, but it, you're managing. Somebody asks you how things are going. You look over at the screen. Boom. There you go. There's there's the measurement. And I didn't make it up. It came out of the, the G whiz machine. The data is mm. there, you know, yeah. and there's data analytics and all these things. So everybody starts to get, I guess, reliant as an insurance policy on decision-making. Well, the data said, doesn't matter if the world <laughs> changed. So the, the, everybody becomes a historian based on the last data pattern. The bosses, the senior people in organizations are comfortable with that because it gives them a feeling like, well, if, if I make a decision based on that fact pattern, who's going to blame me? It's the hmm. history as proven by all this data. And then the, the next thing is, well, let's make a change. Let's make an improvement. Yeah, but not too big of an improvement, mm. right? So it's incrementalism. And the improvements tend to be about optimizing the measurements. You know, mm. we're spending this much, let's spend a little less. We're making this much, let's make a little bit more. Uh, this is this long, let's make it a little longer. Let's make it a little bit shorter. All these little tiny tweaks. And it starts to become a replacement for vision and strategy. Sure. And it shrinks the idea and the commitment to investment. Because investment isn't about what's going to happen in two days. Investment's about what's going to happen in two years. And you aren't going to invest in your people if you're just worried about how Friday's numbers are going to come out about last week. So I saw that and I thought, well, okay, I'm going to, that's the subtitle. I think I kind of, somewhere in there, I say that, you know, strategy is the, the enemy of, of optimization. Mm. 
especially if you're a strategist or a visionary and you're talking to people who are focused on optimization. They, they think you're about to go on the crazy train. Mm. Now, 30 years ago, it would have seemed like a, a, a normal conversation to talk about the future. Do we need to invest in this? Do we need to go buy something that's not going to yield much of a return for the next 18 months, but positions us to kick everybody's butt in our market in mm. 24 months? Nobody would have thought you were nuts for doing that. That's not very optimized because you're, you're spending money on something that's not going to give you a return right away. That's, that was the genesis of it. And so it's a little bit about that. It's a little bit about how to build teams. I call them dream teams to help you take a vision, a thought, and pull together an actionable plan. And then take all the naysayers and op the optimizers and use them too. Use them mm -hmm. as, the, as the sharpening stone. Let's see if they could find fault. Let's, let's see them try to punch holes in the <laughs> practicality of the plan. And then a little bit about how you go and you present this, you know, almost like a venture capital pitch. How would you go to the money people, whether it's your boss or whoever, mm -hmm. and lay out the dream, but then the whole battle plan. So that's, that's what the book's about. And uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun writing that one. And it seems like you're, you know, you're bringing in both, both factions, you know, the, the non data, you know, side of things, create the plan, create the vision, move forward. Yes, do research, but then bringing in data to fine tune it. So it sounds like it's really well balanced. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, Marty, um, how can people get a hold of you? Um, check out your books, uh, you know, uh, check you out as uh, find out more about who you are. Sure. So my website, MartyStrongBeNimble.com has my articles. It has access to my books, both my, my, uh, my nonfiction business books and my fiction books. My fiction books are written under ML Strong. All my fiction books, the proceeds are donated to the SEAL Veterans Foundation. Hmm. It goes to a special program that works on P PTSD and uh, traumatic brain injury. Hmm. So um, all my novels that that's where all the proceeds go. So any, anybody that buys one of those books is actually putting money into that program. Hmm. Um, the business books are, are part of my consulting and, and speaking practice. And, but that's where it is. Marty strong, Great. Well, um, how generous you are for giving to such a worthy cause. That's wonderful. All right, Marty. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I've learned so much. I'm intrigued. Um, going to dig deeper. And thank you for being on your spectacular life. Thank you, Jody. Thanks for having me. All right. You take care. I'm so grateful that you've listened to the end of this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review it and share it with your friends. I love teaching insights so that you can have a more impactful and meaningful life. It's my mission to build a thriving community of happy, fulfilled people. Want more? Visit my website at yourspectacularlife.com.